You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. About seven years ago, there was a crisis that occurred at my house. And when I tell you how I resolved it, I expect more respect from you. (laughs) Seven years ago, for the fifth time at my house, I taught someone how to drive. This time it was my son. He had come to that magical age of 16. The only thought that possessed him was drive. So it was my lot to teach him. Well, on that appointed day, I drove to the largest abandoned parking lot I could find. And there he began to get acquainted with clutches. It was a nervous and difficult time. There was a lot of sweaty palms. And often after about 30 minutes of a difficult lesson, he would say, Dad, can we go home now? I'd say, yes, we can. (laughs) But finally, he became comfortable with first, second, and third gear and cruising gear. I said, okay, son, it's time for us to go out on the streets. Are, Are you sure, Dad? Yep. So as we head out, this is the first time he meets oncoming traffic at all. And I'm over the ditch, you know. He has me way over to the side because he's just a little bit afraid of it. But after a while, he becomes comfortable with that. And then I say, now, son, it's time for us to go to the freeway. No, 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 Dad, no. Yes, I think you can do it, son. Okay, Dad. So he learned how to merge and how to change lanes and drive as if everyone else was basically a raving maniac. Then there came sort of the ultimate test, the litmus test. 605 freeway, coming south, and if you want to come south on 605 and then go to 10 east, that interchange was designed by someone who hates humanity. In about 150 or 200 feet, all cars must change lanes quickly. So I said, well, son, let's go out to 605, go south, and then east on 10. No, 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 Dad, please. Yes, son, we need to do it. So we're approaching now that interchange. His hands are gripping the wheel tightly. Mine are gripping the dashboard tightly. And as we go into it and he looks over his shoulder to see which face will be the last one he'll ever see in this world. (laughs) He discovers to his delight there's there's no one in the other lane at all. And so he scoots over and then whips out on 10. And he's a rather quiet chap, but we get out on 10 and he goes, Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) He'd passed his test. So now I take him to the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, 
where they looked at him and said, yes, two eyes, two ears, two hands, here's your license. (laughs) Now he comes home proud. He has his license. He can drive. And I look at him and I reach into my pocket and I take out a set of car keys and I hand them to him. My hands were a little sweaty. As I handed them to him, I thought, you've never had this car in a panic stop. You don't understand inertia. You have no concept of liability. You do not understand that the family fortune (laughs) is in your hands. I looked at him and I thought, There's a ticket in your future. (laughs) Maybe even a wreck in your future. But I handed him the keys anyway. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 16. Here we begin to look at, well, you could call it Jesus' method of training people. Verse 13 of Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Now, folks, this this question fascinates me. Why is he asking it now? This is the sort of question I would think you would settle with someone before they begin to follow you. But now, quite some time down the road, he's asking them, who do you say I am? Why didn't they settle that earlier? After all the years I've been married, I am not prepared to ask my wife, who do you say I am? I wanted her to settle that before we were married on the basis of what I told her. So here Jesus says, who do they say I am and who do you say I am? Amazing. Well, Simon Peter answered, that doesn't surprise me. And said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Amazing. What are you saying to Peter is, Peter, you didn't figure this out. Your brain bone had nothing to do with it. The Father has revealed this to you. Incredible. I can see Peter folding his arms at that point and thinking, Hey, did you guys hear that? I get revelations. Now, revelations are dangerous things. We'll see that in just a moment. Jesus goes on and says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you... Here we are. The keys 
of the kingdom of heaven. Do you suppose Jesus was just a little sweaty-palmed at this point? (laughs) Do you suppose he looked at Peter and thought, you have no concept yet of the kingdom, and I'm giving you the keys. There's a ticket in your future, boy. There's a wreck in your future, and I'm giving you the keys. I think if I'd have been Jesus, I'd have thought, maybe we should change the locks now. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, finally they figured out who he was, but it wasn't something they figured out. It was something the Father had revealed to Peter. I am amazed at this. After this length of time walking with Jesus, they still had not deduced who he was. It took a revelation. Basically, it still does, doesn't it? There are probably few of us who have made our way into the kingdom because of our exceptional brilliance. But somehow the God of all creation chose to reveal himself to us. Amazing. And here is Peter and these other guys. They didn't know who he was from the very beginning until somewhere along here the Father revealed it to him. And Jesus gives him the keys. Gives him the keys. He says, now you have the power to lock and you have the power to unlock. Now that they know who Jesus is, now that they understand who he is, Jesus begins, it says, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now that they know who he is, he begins to teach them the difficult things. Since he has given them the keys, you can assume that perhaps these men are well trained by this point. Perhaps they're prepared for it. Perhaps they're ready for their license. And consequently, he begins to teach them some of the more difficult things. I must suffer. I have to go through some difficult things. Ah, back to Peter. (laughs) Fresh with keys in his hand. And he's listening to Jesus. What? You're going to, you're going to what? Now, Peter has a great revelation. I'm just like him in a lot of ways. If I had a great revelation like that, you know what I would do tomorrow? I would start the Gail Irwin Revelation Ministries Incorporated. (laughs) Complete with a magazine and my picture five times a page. And Peter, now, with the headiness of this revelation and the keys becomes an advisor to God. I can see it. Come here, God. Now look, don't talk like that. Peter rebukes him. Don't talk like that. You're not, you, you, you shouldn't have to go through all of that. You're God, remember? I told you, remember? And I'm on your side and I get revelations, Remember? What was Jesus' response to him this time? He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't know the things of God, just the things of men. This is the guy. He just said, here are the keys. Now he's saying, get behind me, Satan. You don't even know the things of God, just the things of men. Ooh. Ticket, number one. (laughs) 
fact, I'm fascinated by who Jesus chose. I've spoken to you many times, and I've alluded to it a number of times, the type of person Jesus tended to choose. You look at the apostles, and if you recall, I think I've mentioned to you that he prayed all night before he chose them. Then he chose them. What did he get? Well, he got one that betrayed him, another one that denied him. None of them ever seem to understand him. They constantly are going, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? <laughs> it seems plain to us. Uh, they got angry at him. Uh, they got hard-hearted. The Bible says their hearts were hardened. They all abandoned him at some point. They wanted to annihilate a village. I'll talk about that in a minute. They wanted to keep children away from Jesus. They wanted to stop people from doing good. Now, he either blew the prayer when he chose him, or else that's who he prayed for. And I think that's what it was. I think he prayed, Father, let me choose the ones that the other great corporations of the world might reject. Let me choose the ones, Father, that when you and I use them, everyone will know it was God. So right off the bat, Jesus hands them the keys, and there's a ticket right there. Well, maybe, though, they learned from this. Maybe there was some growth from this. Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 9 and see how much they grew. Beginning with verse 46. Then a dispute, an argument, arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Now, I wish that this said, an argument arose among them as to which of them would get to do a certain job for the Lord. I wish it said that, but it doesn't. These men were remarkably human. They were so much like us, we should feel proud. I wish this said, a dispute arose among them as to which of them could wash Jesus' feet. I wish this said... I wish this said, but it doesn't. It says, an argument arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. They never seem to argue about this in front of Jesus, but Jesus is rather perceptive. And it says, and Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. What an awesome concept. A concept that flies in the very face of everything we face when we are out in our workaday world. It is the opposite of that. If you want to be great, you've got to take over. You have to grab. You know that in the world. But here comes our Creator, and He says to us, No, if you want to be great, man, you've got to be the least. You've got to give yourself away. You've got to focus on other people rather than yourself. Amazing. You would think that these apostles would say, That is a remarkable new thought, Jesus. Would you mind elucidating a little bit more on that? Teach us more about this. We hadn't even thought about this. This does not compute for us. Would you explain further? You would think they would say that, but they didn't. Have you ever been in a conversation where you desperately wanted to change the subject? 
You know, when people start talking about diets, I keep thinking there's got to be a better subject we can talk about. And I try to change the subject. And when you know that there's a subject that's getting close to where you live, you keep trying to think, oh boy, it's a beautiful day out here, isn't it? That's exactly what these guys did. Rather than probe this phenomenal new thought that Jesus shares with them, instead, they quickly want to change the subject. The very next verse says, Now John answered. Now this is John the Beloved. This is John the Revelator. This is the John who Jesus loved, who claims that he leaned against Jesus' breast. And John answered and said, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. Isn't that wonderful? We saw someone doing good, and we stopped him. Because he's not one of us. Remember the night stalker? Remember when they caught him? Of course you do. The thing that fascinates me is this mindset of humanity. Did you know something else happened on that same day? And it was on the front page of the paper too, but I bet you missed this. You see, there was a chap, and I'm not going to argue about whether what he did was right or not, but he decided not to respond to the draft. And he didn't do it secretly or surreptitiously or run away or anything. He wrote the president ahead of time and said, Sir, I'm not going to respond to the draft, and it's for religious reasons, and here's why, and so forth. I just want you to know I'm not going to respond to the draft, and here's why. Well, they came out after him. And, of course, they caught him and tried him. And on the day that they caught the night stalker, they also sentenced this guy. Now, normally in a case like this, when it has to do with military duty, what they'll do is they'll sentence this person to some form of public service so that for a couple of years, perhaps, he has to put in so many hours of public service. The problem was this young chap, that was his lifestyle. He spent his daytime working in some sort of job that was designed just to benefit people. Maybe it was a feeding program or whatever. And his night times, he gave his early evening hours. He had a second job for which he received no pay, but it was a volunteer thing to bless other people. So, I mean, he already did that. You can't sentence him to that. And his lawyers pleaded with the judge to sentence him to two years of service. And the judge says, no, he's already doing good. This man needs to suffer. And so he sentenced him. And he said, for six months, you must not do anything good. It's in the papers. And I thought, this is amazing. Our streets are safe. We've caught the night stalker and the night blesser. I'm amazed at how often I judge another person's dedication to the Lord and his doing good as to whether or not I issued his membership card or not. And the apostles were doing it the exact same way. We saw this man doing good, and we stopped him because he didn't have a card. 
Now, these are the apostles, remember, not the B-apostles. This is the first thing. <laughs> these are the guys with the keys. And Jesus said to him, Don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Oh, hadn't thought of that. Well, surely you would think that at this point they would have learned something, that now they would know how to drive spiritually, so to speak. Well, let's keep reading and find out. Now it came to pass, verse 51, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Now the Samaritans and the Jews, as you know, were not too much in love with each other. And a good Jewish person, rather than even walk through Samaria, would take two days' extra journey to go around. But Jesus didn't seem to have the same prejudices that the rest of us have. And so he's walking through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. Now, for a Samaritan, if there was a good Jewish person, it would be one leaving Jerusalem, not going to Jerusalem. So Jesus sends some messengers into a village in Samaria to find a place for them to stay. They didn't have motels back then, and you sought out homes where you could stay. But, verse 53, they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. I can hear it. The fellows come back and they say, well, when they found out that we were Jews going to Jerusalem, no vacancy. Jews, no vacancy. No vacancy. Now, enter James and John. James and John were brothers, and Jesus called them the sons of thunder. Now, I don't know if it was mother that was thunder or daddy that was thunder. We really know more about mother than we do about daddy. And James and John said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? <laughs> now, I would call this a wreck. <laughs> They're ready to annihilate the clients. They won't let us sleep there, huh? Well, God, would you like for us to call fire down? If I'd have been Jesus, I think I would have said, uh, Go ahead, guys. Can I watch? How are you going to do this, huh? This amazes me. These are the apostles. These are the men with the keys. Would you say they were angry? Any of you ever get angry? No, I do. I do. There are times I do get angry, just like these guys do. And often my angers are just like theirs in that they are nationalistic. Hey, we have a, a fresh new encounter with a man named Saddam Hussein, right? You're watching, aren't you? I know what you're feeling. Hit him. Hit him. I remember when we had the Gulf War, and I bought into it just like most of us did. Hit him again, hit him again, harder, harder. 
And in the middle of all of this, the Lord just spoke to my heart and said, Gail, what do you know about Iraq? Nothing. Hit him again. Hit him again. <laughs> Have you ever prayed for Iraq? No. Hit him again. Hit... And I realized that many of my angers have to do with my whole nationalism and doesn't have a thing to do with the kingdom of God or spirituality or whether I've prayed for anybody or ever tried to win them to the Lord. Would you like for us to call fire? You know what Jesus said to them? You don't know the spirit you're of. Ooh. Wow. I didn't come to destroy the world, but to save it. Another thing I've noticed about my angers is I get angry when people get in my way. If I'm out on the freeway and someone cuts me off, <laughs> I'll pull out, you know, and I'll drive up next to him and just stare at him. And then I'll get over and manage to get in front of him, and then I'll slow way down. Can't get in my way like that. Or if I'm on a surface street and the light's turning yellow in front of me and the man in front is driving five miles an hour and won't let me around and I'm about to lose 60 whole seconds out of my life. I'm furious. Or if I'm the first one at the traffic light and it turns green and the man behind me in a millionth of a second later honks, I want to get out and go back and say, I didn't realize I knew you. I examined my angers and discovered that I get angry when people get in my way. It's very self-centeredness. And I looked at the angers of Jesus and discovered He gets angry in behalf of others. I get angry in behalf of myself. The apostles got angry in behalf of themselves. We must be apostolic. They were very human, weren't they? And Jesus chose to give to them the keys, the kingdom. Amazing. What was he thinking of? Were they prepared? Were they ready? Well, apparently they weren't. Apparently they weren't. There's another place where I realize what these guys are like in the 10th chapter of Mark, the 13th verse. Very familiar passage to you. We get to see again how prepared they are. And they brought little children to him that he might touch them. I like that. That's a, such a beautiful and tender scene. I would say this, this would be typical of Jesus. Children were comfortable around him, and those who had children seemed to be comfortable around Jesus. I like that. So mothers brought children to Jesus and he could just touch them. This is amazing. It doesn't even say that anything is wrong with these children. Maybe these mothers just wanted to be able to write in their baby book, guess who touched you when you were two? You know. 
So I can see this scene. It's a beautiful, tender scene with these mothers and their children in their arms or maybe walking right beside them and patiently waiting for this incredible moment when Jesus would touch their children. Enter the apostles. The men with the keys. These men that Jesus is training. What did they do? It says, but the disciples rebuked those. Who brought them? I can hear it. Lady, I don't think you understand. This is the busiest man in the whole universe, and he doesn't have time just to be touching your breath. I mean your child. However, I'm a registered agent of his, my car. And at a more auspicious moment, perhaps I can get a very brief interview with him for you. And don't call us, we'll call you. And Jesus saw this. Now, I think in terms of the way I would act were I Jesus... You know what I would have said to the guys? I would have said, thanks, fellas. At last, you're doing your job. I mean, I hired you to provide a little bit of cover for me so I could get my Messiah job done. And you could protect me from all of the crowd that comes and gathers around. So thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. But that's not what he said. Jesus was furious. He was indignant. Can you imagine him looking indignant? Probably can't. We tend to think of him holding little lambs and looking sad. <laughs> but he was indignant. He was furious. He was angry with them. Now, I don't know. Maybe he just said, let the record read uh, that I am indignant. <laughs> I have an idea. Whoever was recording this said, oh, man, he's, he's upset. <laughs> and he said, you let the children come to me. You suffer the children. To come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Ah, another lesson for guys with the keys. Well, you would think, you would think that by now they would have learned, right? You would think that now they're prepared and they're really ready. Well, let's see. Go with me to John chapter 14. Here in John 14, Jesus is giving what you could call his final instructions, things to say to the men just before he dies, just before he's crucified. So these would be important words. We would want to watch them very carefully. And so Jesus is saying to them, at the very beginning of the chapter, verse 3, says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. And Thomas said to him, Duh. <laughs> you have to know how to read the Bible, folks. Uh, Lord, we do not know where you are going. <laughs> and how can we know the way? Now, these are the apostles. Remember this. These are the guys with the keys. And Jesus wraps it up and points them not into themselves, but into Him. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then he goes on and says, Now, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him 
and have seen him. Philip said to him, (laughs) Now remember, these are the apostles. These are the men with the keys. The Lord show us the Father. And it's sufficient for us. Jesus just said, you've seen him, you know him. Show us him. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? Jesus got frustrated, folks. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you see? Show us the Father. Well, surely this would have taught them, right? Well, let's read on a little further down. Verse 19. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it's he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Duh! Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus just got through telling him. Because you love me. And therefore, my father will love you. He just got through telling him. And then Judas said, duh. So Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Have you noticed something here? In no place does Jesus do what I would have done with these men. I would have said, that's it. (laughs) Three years of this is just a little much, don't you think, fellas? Your pink slips are waiting on you. I am overwhelmed by the fact that when Jesus began to train these men, he never abandoned them. And yet every one of them at some point were abandonable. You ever felt that way? Do you ever get a little upset with yourself because you just don't seem to get it right sometimes? Do you ever feel like, oh, God, here I am again? You ever feel that way? Do you ever say something you wish you hadn't said? Do you ever hurt someone you wish you hadn't hurt? And then you think, oh, God. I've done this before. Now here I am doing it again. And yet he has stuck with you. Have you noticed that? I mean, look at you. You're here. You're here because something drew you here. There is some relationship going on between you and God that keeps you coming to him. He continues to work with you. Why would he do that? Well, this gives you a good view of what Jesus does with people. He did not choose any of us because of our looks or our money or our intelligence or our influence. He chose us because (laughs) we needed work. 
And he looked at us and he said, Oh, wonderful. It's the best piece of junk I've ever seen. (laughs) This thing is hopeless. You're my type. I will work with you. You cannot be redeemed by anything in this world but me. You're my type. One of the things that I don't like about introspection is the more I look into myself, the less attractive life is. I like walking through a sewer. And when I hear David say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. I think not everything in there can bless Him. Oh, but the fact is, That's what really blesses him is that all that is in there he has taken and washed and redeemed. And that blesses him. And so he takes a group of men, not a one of them qualified, not a one of them worth walking with Jesus. And he patiently works with them. He gives them keys long before they deserve keys. But he says, go for it. You now have power. You can lock and you can unlock. I want you to know He has not given up on you. You may have messed up many a time. You may be awfully discouraged even as you're sitting here and listening to me tonight. But I want you to know God has not given up on you. He may once in a while say, You're acting awfully apostolic. I I wish you wouldn't do this. But He has never given up on you. If he can be that patient with those men and right down at the end while they exhibit ultimate lack of understanding, he patiently, with a tinge of frustration indeed, but patiently teaches them and works with them. And just when you think that he who received the keys in behalf of all of us might be the one who would break through with the greatest victories. Instead, we find him at that crisis moment saying, I don't know him. I never knew him. And the only rebuff he got from Jesus was a look. That's all. It doesn't even describe the look. It just says Jesus looked at him. And Peter wept. I don't think it was because of some way that Jesus looked at him. I don't think Jesus looked at him and went, hmm. Way to go, Peter. I am convinced that the look he gave him was just as much filled with love at that moment as it had been at all other moments. But Peter knew himself. And he wept bitterly. And there may be moments when you're going to weep bitterly because you're so dissatisfied with yourself. But I want you to know He is still working on you. He hasn't given up on you. And the times when you decide, I'm going to do it in my way and I'm going to be this and that. And He comes back and He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you really want to find your life, you have to give it away. You have to lose it. The most remarkable teaching you will ever find. It was the thing that fueled the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Awesome. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul sums this up for us in a way by saying something to us about our ministry, about what it is we do, what God has, has chosen for us, it says. 
Therefore, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. What is he saying in our language? He's saying this. Since it's by his very mercy that we've received this ministry, we don't get discouraged. Simple as that. By the very things that God has given you have come through his merciful hand. Now, a lot of times we get discouraged because we don't get success, right? As the world views success. Oh, if, if you could just... If I could just have some success like some of the other people I see. If we just understood, folks, I, I've come to realize that if only one person ever bothered to show up to hear me, that's one person more than I deserve. The very fact that we get to serve at all, the very fact that we get to minister, the very fact that God uses us comes totally out of His mercy. Not because we were choosable. We were last in the world's line, and God says, I'm going to start from the other end. Okay, I'll take you, and you, and you, and you, and you. Some of the biggest revivals I have seen in the course of years and locations have been because groups of people have just sort of decided and begun to pray, God, give us the worst people in our city, will you? I mean, help, help us win the ones to you that are the worst people in our town. And I think God smiles and says, I like that prayer. And I can count story after story of where God did that in places. And other people start coming to know the Lord because they say, this man's paying his bills now and he's quit stealing from me. Who did this? And God chooses from the other end of the line and that's why we're here. I love it. And he works with us and trains us. And so there's no reason to get discouraged. Ever. Because whatever has happened has come out of His mercy to us so that our lives can be even more useful. And all of the ways that God has, has chosen to express His kindness and the things that have happened to us. I, many years ago, I was, I was just a young man and, and serving as an associate pastor at a church where I, I had to drive about 25 miles, my wife and I, up to this little church. And one Sunday after service, I came out and I had my most unfavorite thing, a flat tire. I hate flat tires. And here I was, dressed fit to kill, a real suit on, folks. And I'm changing this tire. And I mumbled, praise the Lord for a flat tire. There was this sweet little lady. Oh, I loved this lady. Her name, she's 65 years old. She'd only been a Christian for five years. She was so excited person. And she was just sort of standing around watching me, and she heard me mumble that. And she went, oh, Brother Irwin, that's wonderful. I have never heard anybody praise the Lord for a flat tire before. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> praise the Lord. That's right. <laughs> Then I uh, got in my car and we headed out, turned onto the highway, had to cross a large bridge right after we turned on the highway. A massive pileup had just happened on that bridge and it blocked us from getting around and I thought, hmm, where would I have been had I not had a flat tire? Then I thought, praise the Lord for a flat tire. 
as many miles as I fly in a year. I have a lot of stories I can tell you. But some of you know that I was originally scheduled to be on Pan Am 103, but I had to change my schedule and get off of Pan Am in Frankfurt on that day. When I got home, I had to fly back early for a board meeting and when I got home, my wife was white as a sheet, couldn't even talk. She says, have you heard this? I said, no. I said, turn on the TV, you know, and I turned it on, and here was the story. And I thought, oh, man. Oh, what an incredible, visible representation of your care for me, Lord. But then I began to think, that's just a visible one. I wonder how many times God has exhibited His mercy to me and I didn't even know it. And I get all upset sometimes and uptight, man. Why is this happening? And God's saying, it's my mercy, man. It's my mercy. <laughs> if this didn't happen, you'd really be in bad shape. I have a feeling that when I get to heaven, God's going to say, come here when we're putting in your video. I want you to see I want you to see how many angels it took just to keep you rolling. <laughs> we are recipients of His mercy, folks. Even the difficult things that happen to us are further evidence of His mercy because He knows that somebody in a difficult situation is going to need help. And so he says, I'm going to let you go through it so you will be able to help people in this kind of situation so that mercy can flow from you, so that you can do for others the same thing that I have done for you. You can pass this mercy along. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. Give it away. So, he's given you the keys. Oh, by the way, I have noticed there are some things we can do with keys that really are not very profitable. One thing we can do is we can say, Mmm, I have the keys. And we can hide them behind ourselves and say, I have a secret. I know where the keys are. I'm so amazed at some of this modern... Modern uh, religious stuff that it's not modern, it's as old as the hills, but everybody thinks it's modern. And there's always some super smart person who has the key to this and the knowledge of this. And you know, and every once in a while I'll read something or hear something that one of these super smart individuals have said, and I'm going, Well, say what? When the great unknowable knowingness is finally unknown. And you hear loudly the sound of one hand clapping. You have come close to the nothingness of which nothing is made. I'm going, how's that again? And people go bonkers over that. Oh, look at that. He must have some great secret of life, you know. And he hides his hands and he says, yes, I have the keys. I have the keys. No, he doesn't either. That's why he's got his hands behind his back. He knows he doesn't have them. That's the modern stuff. There is a temple somewhere. There is a key somewhere. There is a person somewhere who has this avatarish kind of knowledge. And if you can ever find that person, he is an ascended master. <laughs> oh, come on. Some people try to hide keys. 
Another thing I see that isn't very profitable is sometimes we'll take the keys that God has given us. Let's say you were coming to my house. And we stood out on the porch for about two or three hours. And I said to you, now, this is the key to my house. It is probably one of the finest keys you have ever seen. It actually unlocks this door. I want you to look at this key. I'm going to hold it here. And as the sun passes over, I want you to notice how the light hits this key. You'll see that as the day goes on, various forms of light reflect off of this. Isn't it marvelous? And then listen to the sound. Isn't this amazing? Have you ever heard a key sound like that before? You know. After two or three hours of that, you'd say, I don't think I want to go in your house. Is it okay? <laughs> but he gives us the key. And it's part of his training. He gives us the key not because we have arrived, but because he knows that if we're going to be recipients of his mercy, we have to have the opportunity to offer mercy to others too. And so he says, here they are. So what are you going to do when he gives you the key? Let's go somewhere. You now have the power to lose. Isn't that amazing? You can free people. You can free people, folks. Because you've been a recipient of His mercy. He has chosen you, the most unlikely person, just as He did the apostles. And He says, I give to you the keys of the kingdom. In just a moment, when you leave here, You're not going out empty-handed. You're going out with keys in your hand. Somehow, maybe even this evening, certainly by tomorrow, you will have the opportunity to unlock the door to someone's heart. You will have the opportunity to free someone to become closer to the Lord, to understand Him better, to love Him more. You'll have the opportunity, perhaps, to introduce someone to Him. The keys are in your hands. Oh, but you don't understand. You don't understand, Pastor. I'm, I, I got problems. Well, join the apostles. <laughs> I don't think I'm ready yet. I need about 40 more years of Bible school. <laughs> so did they. But you see, he, he has a lot of confidence in you because he knows he's touched your life. And now he hands you the keys. And he says, they're keys of mercy. Go and unlock something in my name. Amen. Let's stand. Well, somehow, Father, I think you're going to hear the sound of the jingling of keys now as we use them for your glory. So I pray that your mercy will flow to this group of people like it never has before. But it won't stop with them, Lord. It'll just flow on through. And it'll open hearts and lives and free people by your mercy. May your merciful hand rest on every shoulder and guide every other hand here as it uses these great keys that you've given us. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Gail Irwin. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Gail's teaching ministry by visiting servant.org.